Let's bow our heads in prayer and then I'll open some prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for our opportunity to study the Word of God. We're thankful for the lessons that we learned from Esther. We pray, Father, that you would um, reveal to us the, the true meaning, the, uh, the reason for Esther being in the canon of Scripture, and the lessons that are being taught here. So we thankful. We are thankful for um, the, uh, the opportunity to come here and study the Word of God. We pray for God's Holy Spirit to guide us, and we say this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Last week we started the book of Esther, and we progressed as far as chapter 3. We finished chapter 3. And it's important for us to remember the situation that we have in Ezra. And I'm going to continue to show this graphic, and you also have that in your in your notes. But the 70 years of captivity, and we've studied this before over here, begins either in 605 B.C. or 586. But there are 70 years that are involved. And the 70 years figured by those who believe captivity should rightfully begin in 605 B.C. would say that the 70 years ended here, 535. Others that would say, well, the end of the Jewish kingdom, the end of uh, uh, the last king was taken off the throne in 586, and so it really doesn't end until about 515. 515 is the day that the temple was rebuilt and dedicated. It's being rebuilt through this whole time, but it's rededicated here. So one of the important things to remember about that is the 70 years is not centuries of time. It's simply 70 years. And so there are many who went into captivity, who do come back, who are back in Israel at this particular time, and they're, some of them still alive during, when they see the temple in 515. Well, after the temple is rededicated, we have a gap, and it shows here in our uh, text of Scripture with Ezra, because Zerubbabel bows out. He's the one that is with the remnant that returns to Israel, and we are introduced to Ezra. And that occurs between chapters 6 and 7 in the book of Ezra. So that is where this gap is. And we have finished the first six chapters of the book of Ezra, and we're ready to start the seventh. But between that seventh chapter, between the sixth and seventh chapter, we believe that the book of Esther was written. And so we uh, are taking just a little bit of a hiatus, and we are over in the book of Esther. And we saw that it's during this period of time that one of the kings in your notes 
is on the throne. And that gentleman is Xerxes I, who reigns from 486 to 465. And in the book of Esther, he's known as, in the Hebrew pronunciation, is Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. So, he is the first individual that is introduced in Esther 1.1. Now, it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, 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 and you can either say Xerxes I, or simply stay with this Hebrew name. So, he reigns over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. And so we, we've studied chapters 1 and 2 and also 3. And we noted some things as we went through. But one of the, the important points that we need to remember is that even though Elohim, God, and certainly not Yahweh, the Lord, is not mentioned in the book of Esther... He is, there's the allusion to him and the province of God, the sovereignty of God, is continually seen as we go through the book. The events that occur set up subsequent events. And so uh, we begin with, first of all, uh, Queen Vasti in, found in disfavor. And she's dismissed, so we need to find another queen. And that allows Esther to be placed in a position where she will have access to the king. And of course, that's God's hand behind this, all of these actions. Secondly, we see that Mordecai, her cousin really, he's older, but uh, Esther is the daughter of his uncle. So, She's a cousin, but she's younger. He takes her in when her parents um, are no longer there. We're not told exactly why, but she doesn't have a father and mother. She's an orphan. So he takes her in. And he's acting as her father. And he recommends to her when she's selected to be part of those evaluated to be queen, he says don't reveal to the king or to anyone that you are of Jewish descent. Why? I believe it's because he says, I want you to be evaluated on your own merits, not on the merits of the people or have the fact that you have a, uh, uh, an ancestry or something to maybe de- uh, detract from that. So he wants her to be able to get a fair evaluation. And so she doesn't mention this. But... Mordecai is known to be a Jew, and that comes out later when the the king is talking about Mordecai. And it may only come out during the reading of the annals, the records that uh, Xerxes is going to have read to him. But we see that Esther is chosen. She is um, given the crown, so she is uh, given the royal position of being the queen. And then we saw at the end of chapter 2 that Mordecai 
has progressed in the realm so that he is sitting in the gate. Um, verse, let me just begin in verse 19 in the end of chapter 2, or verse 21. 21, in those days while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, and that we're not told specifically what position he has here, but sitting in the gate means he has a position of authority. Whether he is a judge, and that's often what this means, or if he is in some other uh, official role, he has something to do with the uh, king, the, uh, uh, the cities, and the king's administration here. So he sits in the gate. Two of the king's officials, eunuchs, it's uh, translated here, and that's a good translation, probably officials, Bigfin and Teresh, doorkeepers became angry, furious, and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus uh, to assassinate him. So the, so the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. We saw that, that was, Esther gave credit where credit was due here, that it was Mordecai. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, in other words, an investigation was made, they just didn't go out and kill him, they actually investigated it, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows. And we talked about what this really says. Uh, the word gallows there is wood, and it could be a gallows as we often think of it. But the way that they executed people was to impale them on a pole. And that's probably what this means. <clears throat> and it was written in the book, of the chronicles in the presence of the king. And that is important, that this is recorded in the chronicles. But you'll notice <clears throat> there, there is no mention of any um, acknowledgement to Mordecai here. And so it's possible that it says, an in, um, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Somewhere along the line, uh, Mordecai's name or the acknowledgement here you know, falls out of the knowledge of the king because there is there's no mention of any um, gratitude towards, um, towards Mordecai. But what is remarkable is when we go to verse to chapter three, verse one, is the contrast. We see a strong contrast between verses 21 and 23 where Mordecai's service goes unnoticed, uh, unrewarded, we could say. And that is in stark contrast to what we're going to see in verse 1 of chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, and uh, the uh, uh, Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. So it's not as if the king uh, is not grateful, doesn't promote, doesn't show his appreciation. It's just that for some reason we have this contrast. Mordecai, who uh, provides information on the king's life. It's not as if he just supported a policy, but he actually contributes possibly to the longevity of the king, prevents his death. 
and there's no mention of it. But Haman is rewarded, promoted, and we're not even given a reason. It must have been a reason, but it goes unstated. So this is very this very subtly points out a contrast here between Mordecai and Haman. And one of the things that of course that tells us is that life isn't always fair. You know. And so here you have a gentleman who probably should have been rewarded for what he did goes unnoticed. But uh, Haman is promoted for unknown reasons. Not that he didn't deserve it, but it's unknown reasons. And you'll also notice <clears throat> that we believe that uh, Haman is a descendant of Agag. And you'll probably remember Agag from your, you know, the, the dusty corridors of your memory was the king of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were the first uh, tribe, the first uh, raiders that attacked Israel as they were coming out of Egypt. And they became mortal enemies. And God said that they would pay for that. They would be wiped out. And that was one of the responsibilities of Saul. Saul was supposed to go down and destroy the Amalekites. But he doesn't. Has a great victory. He spares Agag. And of course, that's the wonderful passage and not wonderful for Saul, but it's a wonderful passage to study in 1 Samuel 15 where Samuel learns from the Lord that Saul has failed and he's sent down there to to take care of this and he does. He ends up killing Agag. And what is remarkable here is that we see that and all of this is sort of, you know, it's not ironic but it's part of the story that Mordecai is a son of Kish, a Benjamite. Well, Saul was a Benjamite. And so Saul was told to kill, to wipe out the Amalekites. And he doesn't do it. And it ends up, that's one of the reasons why Saul, of course, is dismissed from the throne. One of several. It's the final one, actually. So, when we're introduced to Haman and we're given the fact that he is possibly an, Agatha, an Agite, then we, it, we immediately see that there is intrigue, I guess you could say here. So that when we get into chapter 3, and I really didn't point this out in a little bit of a hurry, this kind of helps us to understand why Mordecai shows no respect for Haman. This guy has, we'll just say they've got a history. At least their ancestors do. So, Haman is promoted, and there's no sense here that Mordecai um, is resentful because he didn't receive recognition, and for some reason Haman has. It's just that he's not going to bow down to this mortal, eternal enemy. Just not going to do it. And so, he then places himself at odds, at enmity with Haman. 
So that Haman then says, all right, we'll just wipe out your entire, uh, the, the Jewish population in the uh, kingdom of Persian media. Well, what does that include? Well, that includes Israel all the way back because it's to all the provinces. So this is not just <clears throat> here in the, in the city. It's not in the immediate province. It's throughout the entire Persian Empire. And if this is successful, <clears throat> well, that doesn't mean that all the Jews in all the world are gone. But you're going to wipe out a fairly significant number of Jews here. So this is, this is uh, an important decree that is proclaimed at the end of chapter 3. They have this proclamation. A copy of the document was to be... Uh, let's see. Verse 13 of chapter 3. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces. All the king's provinces. Remember, and that's why we've, we're told at least twice in this book that there are 127 provinces and the king rules all the way from India to Ethiopia. That's Israel. You've got the, uh, the nation of Israel in there or the province of Israel right now. To annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, a little hard to do maybe, but they can try, on the 13th day of the 12th month, within the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. Okay. So that's where we are. And that's the significance of this. Uh, this is a significant threat on the Jewish people as we begin chapter 4. So it's not just against Mordecai. That's what we need to see. Then Mordecai learned all that had happened. When Mordecai learned all that had happened... He tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. So here he is, going through what we would call the typical, uh, the traditional uh, demonstration of either mourning or great um, disappointment. Uh, And in this case, um, certainly we could say uh, absolute uh, distress in what's going to happen. Verse 3, And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning amongst the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. And many lay in sackcloth and ashes because they know what's going to happen here. They know that uh, they are uh, on the verge of being uh, destroyed. So Esther's maids and eunuchs, the officials that serve her, came out and told her, came and told her. And the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. So, you know, I would say very typical, but very concerned. Esther says, 
you need to take some of these clothes out there and get him properly clothed. And so he says, no, no I, I, I have a purpose here. Then Esther called Hachach, one of the king's eunuchs, one of his officials, whom he had appointed to attend her. And she gave him the command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hafach went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. And you may remember that. He had sworn, King, if you'll allow me to do this, I'll give you so much money, and, you know, sensibly to cover the expenses. Of course, the king said, you do not need to worry about that. He has this regard for Haman and says, we'll just do this. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain to her that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him, the king, and plead before the king for her people. So, Hathach returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Now, this is placing Esther in a rather difficult position, simply because of the, the laws of the land. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and gave him a command for Mordecai, gave him a directive for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, uh, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days, for the past 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. So what we see here is that the only people that can approach the king are those who either are in his immediate retinue on a day-to-day basis or those, those he summons to come in. And in the Medes and the Persians and other uh, ancient uh, empires as well, the reason that this was set up is so that no one who has any um, mischief, they might say, on their mind would be allowed in the presence of the king. Uh, So if someone wants to assassinate him or if they have a plot against him, They can't even appear. They can only appear if they're brought in, and only those whose loyalty is confirmed are allowed to be there. And the king only sends for those he wants to see. Now, this is one of those unique or remarkable situations where a person, if he didn't want to see somebody, he'll never see him. The only people that will ever see him is the ones he wants to see, to include the queen. And she says, I haven't been summoned for 30 days. So... This would indicate that uh, she's, she's either not in favor right now or for some reason the king has not summoned her for, for 30 days. And she says, you know, if I was 
being, if I was you know, routinely being called, then it might be one thing, but I, even I haven't seen him for 30 days. Verse 13, And Mordecai told, uh, told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. Now, she is not known by the king or by his officials to be a Jew, but that doesn't mean no one is, uh, doesn't know that. There, there are going to be others who do know. And so all she needs to have is just someone who hates the Jews to say, well, you know, we're missing, we're, as we kill all these Jews here, we're missing one of them, and that's uh, in the king's palace. And remember, a decree of the king is a decree of the king. doesn't make any difference. So Mordecai is saying, don't think that you're going to escape. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. He's saying the sovereignty of God, and here we see it again, and Mordecai believes this, the sovereignty of God is going to take care of us. He's not going to allow all the Jews to be destroyed. But if you remain silent, you are going to suffer the consequences for that. And it's sort of an interesting uh, series of principles that go in here. Number one, Mordecai is saying that you you have an opportunity to do for your people here. God is going to give you this opportunity. And that's what he says in the, the subsequent part of that verse. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So he says, God's giving you this opportunity. Now the question is, are you going to accept the, the opportunity? Are you going to act on this opportunity? Or are you going to lay back and not do anything? God's going to provide for his people. God will provide for his people. But the means, the instrument here, is now falling to you. So you can do this. And if you choose not to act, then he's saying, then you won't survive. Verse 15, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan, and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days, for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So, she says, what I would like for you to do is to fast. And of course, during this fasting, remember, and we've studied fasting before. There is no spiritual significance to fasting. It simply means we're going to set aside other things that we would normally be doing that would intervene in our prayer or worship or whatever it might be towards God. We're setting those things aside so that we can really focus on our prayer and worship. And that's what she asks them to do. Uh, to petition God so that she can go in. She says, it's against the law for me to do so. 
and if I perish, I perish. Of course, there is one uh, uh, allowance here, and that is the King Caesar, whoever it is, and desires for her to come on in, then he can extend the scepter to her. So Mordecai went his way, verse 17, and did according to all that Esther commanded him. Now it happened on the third day that Esther put away her uh, put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. Here we are in chapter 5. So she goes over to the palace and she stands it says in the inner court of the king's palace. So we probably have something you know the palace something like this. And there's going to be, apparently, some sort of an inner court. And on one side is where the king is located. And on the other side, there may be uh, other, uh, other uh, uh, areas of responsibility. But she's going to enter. We'll say at the gates over here. She's going to enter and stand here. And the king is over here so that he has knowledge that she is there. So she enters the court of the king's palace across from the king's house, king's house being on the one side, facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that he found favor, grace, in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And so apparently it can be seen from that distance. You know, He extends the scepter and then she enters. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. So it's, it's that acknowledgement that she has been told to arrive, and she comes in and she, can, she touches the scepter. That was simply the tradition in that court. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. And this is a... I think it's a typical response of the king. Okay, you wanted an audience with the king. You arrive, and he says, what would you like? What's your request? Why did you want an audience with me? Why did you want to see me? And what's interesting is that Esther does not decide to make the request at this time. But the king is saying, "You know, I will give it to you And it says, up to half the kingdom. Now, for those of us who have been steeped in the language of the Bible, know that this probably doesn't mean I'm going to give you half of my kingdom. And I think it's a figure of speech. It's a figure of speech that simply says, I'll be very generous. You know, whatever you want, I am willing to hear it, and I am... You know, in an exaggerated, hyper, hyperbole way, he says, "I will give it to you." Uh, we we see this uh, back in Mark. Let's hold your finger here. Let's turn back to Mark six. Turn back to Mark six. In Mark six. King Herod has arrested 
John the Baptist. And he throws a party for uh, Herodias' daughter. And she dances for him. And then, let's begin to pick it up in verse 21. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles and high officers and the, and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod, and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He also swore to you, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And the figure of speech here seems to mean that I will uh, favorably consider what you request, and the way they couched it was to say, I give, I give you up to half of my kingdom. Well, He's not going to give her half the kingdom, but it means I am, uh, I'm going to uh, very favorably uh, consider or grant your request. And so I think back in Esther, that's exactly what we see here. So um, we notice that even though that was extended to her, she, she could ask for anything here, just about. But she humbly asks for nothing. She doesn't ask for anything. Of course, she has something on her mind. She has a purpose. She knows what she needs here. So Esther answered, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a banquet that I have prepared for him. So God is preparing the situation. And Esther... um, demonstrates, I think, a lot of common sense and understanding as she prepares the king. God's preparing the situation, but she's going to prepare the king for this as well. And this is an unusual request. Um, The history kind of tells us that it was uh, that the kings of the Medes and the Persians and even the Babylonians, when they would just normally... uh, eat with the, the queen. You'll notice that the banquet, the queen was not present. So it was, when they got together, it was usually a private affair. The, the king didn't share his wives with, uh, with others. So it was usually when uh, it was a, the members of the family, it was just the family. So this is a little bit unusual. But anyhow, she requests a banquet. Verse 5, Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther has prepared, had prepared. So, uh, banquet, invite uh, both the king and Haman. And you know this sounds a little unusual here because Haman's the cause of the problem, but she's bringing Haman in at the same time. Verse 6, At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom it shall be done. Again, I think he's just indicating that he is very interested in uh, uh, granting her request. Verse 7, Then Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman Come to the banquet which I have prepared for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So she says, 
I would like for you to come to the next banquet. I'm, I'm banquet tonight, but there's going to be another banquet tomorrow night. And it will be at that banquet that I answer your request. And I think there's several things going on here. Number one, um, the king has said he would grant the request. But she is, I believe, not just sort of laying the groundwork here, but she's actually uh, giving the king the opportunity to, okay, I'll come to your banquet. Okay, I'll come to your banquet. So it demonstrates that he does take pleasure in her. And so I think there is the common sense here of uh, asking him, providing these two requests. So he really says, what's your petition? And I will grant it. She says, well, my first petition, my first request is, would you come to the banquet? Oh, sure, I'll come to the banquet. Well, the banquet. Now, what was your original request? Well, I have another request, and that is, would you come to another banquet tomorrow night? And then I'll tell you. And he says, sure, I'll come to it. And I think it's the, it's the you know, probably uh, developing the rapport, but also you know, testing the king's favorability here towards her. And she finds out that she does really fall in his favor. So, come the next night, and I will do as the queen has said. So Haman went out that day, joyful, with a glad heart. But let me stop here. There's something else I wanted to say about this. The other thing that's going on here, I believe, is two things. First of all, Esther doesn't sense that that's the right time yet. And, you know, there are, we have that saying that timing is everything. And that's probably, there's more truth to that than we know. But Esther, in the interaction she has, doesn't sense that the time is quite right. I mean, she's, she doesn't have a lot of time because I want to get this thing turned around. But it's not something that has to be done this instant. And so she's waiting for the right timing. And I think... That's something that we've been talking about when it comes to evangelism. Um, I think you can sense in a conversation when the time is right to actually present the gospel. And sometimes you know, we get this urge and we just have to say something. And the, the time may not be exactly right. Well, Esther is waiting for the right timing. And because she waits for the timing to be right, God is going to act in her behalf without her even knowing it. God is now going to act on her behalf. Verse 9. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation, anger against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and, called for his, sent and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman told them of, this great, of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king 
to the banquet when she prepared, that she prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Yet all of this avails me nothing so long as I see one person out here not falling down and paying homage to me. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai, the Jew, so he is known to be a Jew, sitting at the king's gate. If this just, he can't stand it. doesn't make any difference how successful, wealthy, or how much recognition he has. This one person over here controls his happiness. So all of this is uh, very, you know, uh, it's just temporal. It has no lasting uh, joy or happiness in his heart. This guy can destroy it all. Mordecai controls his happiness. And that's the exact thing that we need to avoid in our lives. Verse 14, Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows, let a pole be set up, 50 cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it, be impaled upon it, then go merrily with the king to the banquet. You know, after you have slain your enemy, after you've impaled him here, then you can go happily. You can be happy. And the thing pleased Haman. So he had the pole, the gallows made. All right. Now, between verse chapter 5 and chapter 6, we really have the turning point of the book. There is a significant change between these scenes in our play. Because up to this point, God is working behind the scenes, and he's going to continue to work behind the scenes. But what we are now going to see is that the king, God is going to turn the circumstances in the king's mind. Chapter 6. That night the king could not sleep. Now we're not told why he can't sleep. We don't know if he has many of these sleepless nights. But there's probably something in the empire that uh, is bothering him. Why? Because he calls for the chronicles. And you know, there's the joke here is that you know, reading the records would put anybody to sleep. You know, he's an insomniac here and he needs, um, he needs a sleeping pill. So he says, bring in the driest records you can find. We're going to read through them. I don't think that's the case. I think there is something in his kingdom that's bothering him. And he says, I need to get the history of something. And so he calls for the Chronicles to be read. Couldn't sleep. So one, one of, his, one of the members of his staff, was awakened and brought in. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the Chronicles. And they were read before the king. And they're going to read all, you know, from the time that he can't sleep until they bring him in. They're going to read all night long. So this guy really can't sleep. What? Well, God's keeping him awake. He's holding his eyelids open over here. And it was found written that Mordecai had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, officials, 
The doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands, sought to assassinate King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? Well, Mordecai is within hours of being impaled on this pole. You talk about you know, being rescued, delivered at the last second here. And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang, impale Mordecai on the pole that he had prepared for him. So we see that this has gone on reading the Chronicles all night long. Haman probably did appear pretty early, but he's not going to come in the middle of the night because he doesn't expect the king to be up. So he arrives in the morning when the king would be there, when he would be able to, again, be granted an audience with the king. Five. The king's servant said to him, Well, Haman is there standing in the court. And again, I think what we see here with this king is that he does have some periods when he doesn't make the best decisions. But for the most part, he realizes that he's the king of an empire. And if he's going to make decisions, he probably should have advisors recommend to him. Let's get some of the smartest guys in the kingdom in here to advise me on this, to make recommendations. So that's what he does. He says, who's in the... uh, Who's in the court right now that is an advisor that uh, I might just ask him uh, for some recommendations here? So Haman, uh, so Haman came in. The king said, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man? And of course, as you know, the Lord would have it here, not fate, but as the Lord would have it, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Well, he doesn't say Mordecai. He doesn't say who this is. I'm just saying if I wanted, let's just say I wanted to honor somebody. What, what do you think would be the best way to do that? Now, Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? You know, this guy is very arrogant a little preoccupied with himself here, says, well, I can't, you know, I know the king's business, um, and I, I don't think there's anybody around here who is more favored in the king's eye than me, so he must be talking about me. And Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought, which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has written, written, you know, give him your best sports coat or uh, suit, you know, get the royal limo out, and a horse on which the king is ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of the one of the king's most noble princes that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. So he says, take it to your most noble prince. Well, what he doesn't know is that 
what he's recommending is not going to be him, but it involves him. Because he's going to end up being the most noble prince here. Then let this robe and this horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man. He's the one. The most noble one is going to be the one that's arraying him. Array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, and this is great, and in, in the Hebrew text, it's very direct. It's an imperative, and it's in the second masculine singular. This isn't, go out there and find somebody to do this. It's you. You're the most noble prince in the kingdom. And I'll insert that as we go. You hurry. You take the robe and the horse as you, masculine singular, have suggested. And you do so for Mordecai the Jew. I'm sure he almost blacked out. I'm sure he was probably a little wobbly. His knees were a bit weak. Who sits within the king's gate. You, masculine singular, leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. That was the command of the king. So Haman took the robe and the horse, the royal limo here, and he, you, arrayed Mordecai. He did it. He arrayed Mordecai. And he led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Isn't this remarkable? Afterwards, look at this. Afterwards, Mordecai just goes back to the gate. So he was honored, but Mordecai doesn't assume anything. He then goes back to the gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning in great sorrow, is our word here, and with his head covered, his head veiled. He had been walking around through the city, uh, honoring Mordecai, and now as he's way home, he says, I don't want anybody to know that. I don't want anybody to see me. When Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him, his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, and so it says here that you you are now, Mordecai is on the rise, and you are on the downside of this situation. Uh, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish descent. You know, <laughs> this is great. Let's see, didn't we, just, didn't we just get a decree out there that said we're going to destroy all the Jews? Isn't that what we did? And now Mordecai has been honored, and he's, his star is rising, and if he's of Jewish descent, we got a problem, Haman. You know, you've laid out a recipe that is going to end up in disaster here. Is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail. And the strong negative there, 
you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. And we have this intensification of the Hebrew verb uh, that some places people would like to translate it, falling, you will fall. But that's not the best translation. It's, but you will absolutely fall. There is no way you are going to survive this. You're going to fall before him. Verse 14, while they were still talking with him, the king's officials came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet, which Esther, and it doesn't say the Jew, but Esther had prepared. So, you know, while they're still speaking, and again, the it's just so well written, we're still telling him, you know, if, if Mordecai's a Jew, and, you know, you have uh, set this <coughs> decree to destroy the Jews, well, I'm afraid there's no way you're going to survive this. Please come to the banquet where his, um, you know, his future is going to be presented to him in, unfortunately, a very negative way. And so the stage now is set as we begin chapter 7 to see exactly what's going to happen to Haman, Mordecai, Esther, and the Jews. And so uh, next week we'll come back and we'll pick up in chapter 7, 7, 8, 9, and uh, a bit of chapter 10. We'll finish our our study, our uh, hiatus over into Esther as we study the book of Ezra. But it will not be... No, is next week the 20th? No, we have one week, then we have this one. Okay, so we will be here next week. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the fact that you are in history. Uh, The life that we live, human history, truly is your history. And your hand is there, your will is there, your purpose is there. And while you do not direct everything, you either direct or allow them to happen. And so we know you are full aware, fully aware of what is happening to us and around us and in human history. We should be able to see your hand there, and we do. We're thankful for your sovereignty, and we're, we're thankful that um, as we study Esther, we see how you are working in the lives of, of Mordecai and Esther and really in the events of this great empire. And so, if you were working in that empire, then, Father, you are also working in the history of the United States and what's occurring right now. Your hand is being seen in the events as they unfold before this election. And your hand is seen in our lives. So we, Father, ask us for uh, awareness and appreciation that we would be thankful for what you are doing for us. And we pray, Father, that we would continue to be faithful to you and dedicated and realize that you are the, the one and only God, our God, a personal God that, is, that cares for us and is taking care of us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.